0: Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name's Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts, and we have one of our other co-hosts with us, Jeff Rutt. Say hello, Jeff. Hey, everybody. And we have a, you know, every week I say we have a Very special guest, and I mean it every week, but I'll say it again. We have a very, very special guest with us, Randy Alcorn. Randy is the founder and director of Eternal Prospective Ministries and a New York Times bestselling author of over 60 books, including Heaven, The Treasure Principle, one of, I know, Jeff Rutt and I's favorites, and one I just finished, which is uh, Giving is the Good Life, obviously amongst many, many more. I was thinking of a bad joke, uh, Randy, that between the two of us, we've sold 12 million books. Unfortunately, you've sold 11.999 million of them, and I uh, I cleaned up the rest. So I'm just going to say between us. Okay, we've sold that. But Randy, thank you for uh, being with us on the uh, podcast today. Uh, you're very welcome. Great to be with you guys. This is going to be fun. Uh, Jeff Rutt, I'm going to let you kick it off.
1: Yeah. Well, Randy, welcome. Look forward to hearing uh, about your journey. Tell us a little bit about the early years of what it was like for Randy. Your home, a little bit of your spiritual development, and uh, what your home was like.
2: Yeah, I grew up in an unbelieving home. My dad was a tavern owner, owned several taverns, and then uh, supplied amusement machines for them: pool tables, shuffle boards, the what used to be called pinball machines that preceded, you know, flipper machines, and all of that. So uh our house was actually a fun place to come because my dad would always be moving machines between taverns and so then they were stored in our basement whatever wasn't currently in a tavern so boy my friends just loved to come over because dad rigged it up where i mean it was just open so you just put one quarter in and just kept using the same quarter. every kid's over, over dream drop down yeah and uh, and then I uh, had two pool tables, one in my bedroom, one that was out in the hall, you know, all of that. Okay, so that was the good part. The bad part was uh, my parents didn't know the Lord. Uh, I mean, good people. Uh, my dad was a good provider. My mom was a wonderful, loving person. But I never heard anything about Jesus. I mean, uh, I got taken to uh, Sunday school at the United Methodist Church. One week when I was in third grade, and it was the Sunday that they gave out Bibles to third graders and eighth graders, and that's what they did one time every year, and as a third grader, there I was, so I came home with a Bible. Only Bible in our house, just sat on a shelf, untouched by any of us for many years until I was in high school, the spring of my freshman year. I had met this girl and she was a church-going girl and we actually met on a blind date where her friend's dad drove my friend and her friend and that was Nancy who became the love of my life and wow uh then from that our freshman year of high school we never dated anyone else we're married for 47 years uh, but we knew each other seven years before we got married. So 54 years we knew each other. The Lord took Nancy home about a year ago, and uh, I miss her uh, with all my heart, but I am so grateful for all the conversations that she and I had about heaven, about the new earth, about the life to come, about the resurrection, about the fact that it doesn't end here. We didn't pass our peaks. I've passed my peak in this life, but we'll never pass our peaks in the life to come. I say I pass my peak in this life. And, and, and I just finished uh, coaching high school tennis, which I do. And every year it just gets, and I have two grandsons on the team. And I used to be, be able to beat all those kids. And now it's like my mind, my mind tells me, you can make the shot. And then my body screams back at me, no, you can't. I can't make that shot anymore. I used to be able to, you know, the, we have these memories of what we used to be able to do, and then we try it and we get in trouble. But my point is that, yeah, that was the home I grew up in. Heard the gospel when I went to a youth group uh, that I went to sh- strictly because Nancy was there and I liked Nancy. So that was my motive. And you know what? Uh, often, I mean, motives are, are great, they're important, but we can go somewhere and do something with the wrong motive and God can still use it, change our lives. And I ended up, more importantly, even than meeting Nancy, I ended up meeting the Lord through the ministry of that church. But what happened was I didn't come to the Lord at church. I uh, I took that Bible that had been there, Revised Standard Version, that had been on the shelf since I was in third grade, and here I was a freshman in high school. I took it off the shelf and opened it up because people were always talking about the Bible. Uh, at youth group. And so I opened it up and I started reading. And, you know, I didn't, you know, people talk about how they started reading the Bible, then they got to Leviticus and they were totally confused. Well, I was confused in Genesis 1. So, I mean, I didn't have to wait to get to Leviticus to get confused because in the beginning, God created that. And I'd only heard of God as just a a word that people use either when they're swearing or I, I didn't have any notion Mm. of the identity of this God that was being spoken of. And as I read it, I was fascinated and my hobby was astronomy. I go out every night under the cold Oregon sky, every night that was clear, which wasn't every night, but I would look through my telescope and I remember just weeping, just crying because it was so wonderful. And yet, it was scary to me because I didn't know what it was all about. I just was very aware of my kind of aloneness. Who are we? Who are people, you know, believe evolution like everybody does who doesn't have some Christian, you know, or theological influence? And the Lord, as I kept reading scriptures, then I, somebody told me I should skip ahead to the gospels. I read the gospels and the moment I read about Jesus and listened to Jesus, he had the ring of truth, and I gave my life to him. I remember being on my knees in that room, my bedroom, and just giving my life to Christ and just asking, Hey, I don't know that much about you, but I want to know you. And that was the beginning right there. And then I had the joy of a couple of years later, while I was still in high school, leaving my mom to faith in Christ. I was actually able to baptize my mom. She became a sold-out believer. My dad was. Totally hostile to the gospel. But then, as an 85 year old, when he's dying of cancer, shared the gospel with him, what I thought was one last time because he was always against it, didn't want me to talk
1: about it. And then he gave his life to Christ. I had the wow. joy of seeing that happen. And wow. Was... wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, take us through those high school years. This is all while you're still in high school. Me? That's amazing to, to hear how God got a hold of your life. And completely turned it around, and then obviously influenced your family and so many more. But walk us through the, uh, yeah, high school and and the next few years.
2: Well, one of the things that happened in high school we can connect to the the theme of this podcast is God almost instantly turned me into a giver, and what prodded it was I was a reader, and so I'd go to this Christian bookstore and I'd read uh, these different things off the shelf. So. Uh, one of them was Richard Wormbrand's Tortured for Christ, which was a very new book at the time. Corey Tin Boom's The Hiding Place, also a new book. God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew. So I'm reading these exciting uh, and challenging tales that involve suffering and persecution. And I just, I remember at, at the back of, I think it was Tortured for Christ. Uh, it wasn't called Voice of the Martyrs yet, but there was something you could give to that Richard Wormbrand was involved with at the time to help persecuted people. And after reading that book, I just want I want to do that. So I took money that I had saved up from berry picking and cutting cauliflower and all my summer jobs and all that kind of stuff and started giving it away. And it actually ended up, at the time, There's no I didn't have a checking account. I didn't want this to be a high-profile thing because I knew what my dad would think about it. And so I would go and get money orders, and that's how I would send this contribution, and somebody taught me how to do that. and Dad found the receipts from the money orders and was extremely angry. Why are you wasting this money? I said, "Well, Dad, I did earn that money, yeah, but I provide the roof over your head and and I get that. but it really was a bone of contention, but It was, my heart was so moved to give to God's kingdom, and I found such joy in giving right from the get-go.
1: Wow, and very industrious and entrepreneurial and uh, generous. So walk us through uh, the college years.
2: Yeah, so uh, I went to what was then called uh, Multnomah School of the Bible, later become Multnomah Bible College, now it's Multnomah University, right here in the Portland area. Uh, every once in a while, when people find out I'm from Portland, I had somebody come up to me and say, I hear you're from Portland. I said, yeah. He said, I'm so sorry. And I said, well, don't you don't have to feel sorry for me. I, I know there's a lot of weird things about Portland and hence keep Portland weird, you know, and everybody's doing a real good job of that, keeping Portland weird. Uh, but you know what? I love it in this area. It's, uh, it's a mission field. And when God calls you to a mission field, you'll love your mission field. And so that's, that's how I feel about it. A lot of people, a lot of Christians moving away from Portland to go to Idaho and go other places and kind of escape that, you know, but you know, some of us need to stay and uh, I'm glad to stay. Awesome. Yeah. So that's college years. were good. Nancy and I went through Multnomah together. And then we, after we graduated our senior year, two weeks later, we got married.
1: That's awesome. Well, before I turn it back over to Jeff. Uh, the other Jeff, uh, tell us a little bit about what it's like to have five grandsons. I just heard you say you had two of them on your tennis team that you're coaching. That's right, that's right.
2: And then the the third, well, we have three older grandkids, one 17, two or 18, and the 18 year old who lives down in California, uh, I say this as being up in Oregon, is uh, also a tennis player. And I taught them how to play when they were little kids, but they all went off on their sports baseball basketball football all of that seemed like there was no tennis in their future and all three of them got into high school and picked up tennis so that was fun and uh, so i was able to help coach two of them unfortunately i can't coach the one that's in california but i played with him a lot and we have a great time
0: that's fantastic now what did you study in college randy
2: i noma at the time was you were required every student was required to have a double major in Bible. So, And the, and the, the motto of the school was, if it's Bible you want, you want old normal. And so I majored in Bible twice over and loved Bible, loved theology. I got a, a bachelor's of theology. I went on to get a master of arts in biblical studies. Greek was my minor and when I was doing my bachelor's degree. And then I did a lot of original language stuff in my uh, master of arts and uh then we started a a church myself and and a guy stu weber whose name you might know he's done a lot of men's ministry stuff and military ministry and things like that wrote the book tinder warrior years ago but stu and i are still good friends and we started that church he was nine years older than i was but uh he was only 31 i was 22 uh starting as a full-time pastor when we planted this church and it was an adventure, uh, and, uh, I knew so little, I I just look back and I'm, I'm just stunned at how young I was and how God just protected us. His still was older, but older 31 old, you know? So. Right.
0: (laughs) Right. It seemed like a lot at the time. It did at (laughs) the time. Yeah. Okay. So we start the church. It maybe take us into when does the writing begin? I mean, 60 books is a lot. When, how many years before you started writing?
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, people sometimes tell stories of somebody who inspired them to end up doing right. what they wanted to do. Well, for me, my favorite uh, theology prof uh, was Dr. Wong, uh, Dr. Joseph Wong at Multnomah. And one of my papers that I turned in, and it was a, a term paper, theologically related for one of the several theology courses of his that I took. And, uh, he, uh, made some glowing remarks about it and then wrote a note in red. He says, you should consider being a writer. Wow. And when you hear that from somebody who you really respect and means a lot to you, I don't know that I'd ever thought of becoming a writer. I knew I enjoyed writing, I mean, I figured that I might write on the side for the rest of my life, but I never envisioned becoming a writer per se, and certainly not. If you would have told me one day I would have written sixty books, I would have said you're crazy. But it was really his inspiration from that. So what I did was I took a I wrote an article because you start with articles, not with books, generally. that's the was the school of thought in those days. And so uh, I submitted an article to, Anybody, do either of you remember the magazine Moody Monthly? Mm -hmm. It was a popular magazine at the time from Moody Bible Institute, and, and it was very popular. And in its day, it was more popular than Eternity, another magazine, Christianity Today in the early years. Moody Monthly was the most popular of those. And so I wrote an article and I submitted it to them. I went to a writer's conference and met the editor, submitted it to them, and they printed it. It was about the Christmas shepherds. I had done my master's, I was working on my master's degree related to the shepherd theme throughout scripture. And so that's how I got started.
0: So you start out doing these shepherds. This is in your twenties, right? You're running the church. I'm envisioning you doing this on the side. Is that fair? Right. Totally on the side. And how does the first baby book come about? What, What was the first book and what was the inspiration for that?
2: Yeah. My first book was Christians in the Wake of the Sexual Revolution. And people who've been around a long time and were really readers may remember uh, that Multnomah Press, then later Multnomah Publishers, had a, a line called the Critical Concerns Series. And it was quite popular and, and there were a number of different uh, books that were written that were part of it. And I think mine was maybe the fourth or fifth book in that series. And, and, but it basically it was about and by that time, I was, it was 1984. So I was 30 when that book came out, right about my 30th birthday. And it was like, it was life changing for me to do that research and do that writing. And basically, I learned how not to write a book because I just, so many things I did wrong. I won't get into them. But, and I look back at that book and I've actually gone back and dared to read portions of it and i win you know yeah. but you all you can do is do your best at the time you do it uh, I don't know. They, th- they thought it was a good book and at the time i thought it was a good book and i look back at it now and everything i've learned about writing since um i violated pretty much in the writing of that book but uh, but it was great experience and and it's like if you talk to somebody that builds houses what what's the worst house they ever built I assume it's probably the first one, right? And then you learn all the ways not to build a house. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. So, but, but somebody must've liked it because, or you must've gotten over this, uh, because you wrote a second one.
2: Yeah, exactly. And uh, man, Nancy and I wrote a book together called women under stress. Uh, and she wanted me to do the primary writing, but we researched it together and we read books together and all that. And, she was experiencing a lot of stress in her life, and uh, we were by that time we were young, married with children, and uh, like most, many of our friends were, and our friends who were older, people in the church were already facing loss of maybe their parents passing away, their spouse passing away, whatever it might be, and there's just all these stresses of life. So we wrote this uh, book about stress. And then went on from there. The third book I wrote was Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It came out in nineteen eighty nine, and that book. Then uh, later I revised and up- updated. Now it's been probably fifteen years ago when I did that, uh, but but it was there around a long time and influencing a lot of people. And I think the it's a big book, and the cumulative sales on that book are very high. For a big, serious book, I think last I knew it was like 180,000 copies or something like
0: that. Well, somewhere the marketing team showed up and told you to write a shortened version of it called The Treasure Principle, right? And is that your best-selling book, The Treasure Principle? It is.
2: The uh, Treasure Principle sold over 2 million copies. The Heaven Book has sold, I think, close to a million and a half copies now. And the there's a Heaven Booklet uh, that has also sold over a million copies. Uh, but Treasure Principle, yeah, surprisingly popular. And we used to joke about this because, you know, nobody in those days would have said, okay, how can we, we we want We want a million-seller book, what shall it be on? Nobody would have said, a book that encourages you to give most of your money away. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, no, but that's not the key. You know, You actually have to pay money to get a book that tells you to give your money away. Um, and that is not a formula for success, but for whatever reason, God put his hand on that book and rose it up. And actually, uh, at the time I knew uh, Rick Warren and he was at at Saddleback and he contacted me. He had read uh, The Treasure Principle. He says, Randy, if, if our church buys 15,000 copies uh, of this book to give away uh, to uh, people in our church, would you come down here and speak? And I said, yeah, let me pray about that for five seconds. And I said, yes, I will, you know? And so I did, wow. and that really helped because those first 15,000 copies that went out, I mean, and we actually, uh, I got the publisher to sell them uh, to Saddleback for a dollar a piece. Wow. So I say, you know, so they put all this money into marketing. We'll spend money on it this way, you know? And in those days, by the way, a hardcover book, that was that small. The actual cost of it was right about a doll. Yeah. So that was no big deal, and it ended up, I think, very effectively promoting the book.
1: Yeah. So, well, it certainly so, had an influence on my life and a lot of other folks. So thank you for writing that. And and you're right. When you go to when you you set out to write a bestseller, you don't think, uh, let's let's write a book about uh, telling people they need to give money away, and we're going to charge them for the book. But it, there's right. so much truth, the, and that's. That's what hit home with that book is it's based on the truth.
0: So, so we were talking before we recorded about maybe the most famous line in that book, at least uh, for us, which is you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And that has kind of a nice, you know, kind of rolls off the tongue. But there's a lot in that subtext. Would you mind kind of unpacking that statement for us?
2: Yeah, I mean it goes right back to Matthew six nineteen through twenty one, where Jesus says, "Do not store up for yourselves treasure on treasures on earth." And then, what's the reason for where moth and rust, rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal? But do store up for yourself treasures in heaven, uh, where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't do not break through and steal, for where. Your treasure is there, your heart will be awesome. Okay. So, so the point is okay, it's not that God's against treasure. So, if all he said was don't store for yourself treasure on earth, we just go, okay, he just doesn't want us to materially have many things. But he turns it around. He says, no, instead store them up in heaven. And I think in the context, what he's talking about clearly is taking things of financial value, monetary value, material value, take instead of accumulating them on earth, giving away that money, giving away the money that represents stuff that could be treasures on earth and that itself is treasure on earth, and invest it in heaven, put it in a different location. That's, you can't take it with you. Uh, because you you and your treasures are going to be parted right uh, we all are uh, either we'll lose our treasures or our treasures will lose us because you know we when we die we don't take it with us you can't take it with you but Jesus adds this corollary which is you can send it on ahead you can take it and put it in heaven so that it will be yours in the form of treasures in heaven so that's not only eternal reward but it's It's talking about the people whose lives we've invested money in through giving, through our churches, and through parachurch organizations, missions organizations, Bible translations, feeding the hungry, getting people out of poverty and, and sex trafficking and everything else. We can do eternal good with temporal assets that will otherwise just ultimately disappear.
0: And and that last bit, you can't take it with you. I think everybody kind of knows there's the old joke about the, you know, the hearse doesn't pull a U-Haul kind of, you know, okay, we, we right. sort of get that. It all goes back in the box. I think that's a, a, a commonly known sort of thing. But the second part, you can't take, but you can send it ahead, even though it's in there And and you read the verse and it's clear as day. We were talking earlier, that's not commonly taught. What, right. Why do you think that is? And can you unpack that just a bit more for us?
2: Yeah, I think it's not commonly taught because it's just not uh, to most people. It's not an appealing thing. I think we tend to avoid the hard passages. Uh, yeah, and, and and we love passages that talk uh, anything about uh, prosperity. You know, uh, I mean, <laughs> here that, that that sings to us. Yeah, here. Yeah, uh, but in in. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul picks up on this uh, when he says in verse 17 and following, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. You just can't. Wealth comes and goes, and even if you keep it, it's just not um, dependable. It doesn't bring you happiness. But... Instead, to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, which I really, that means a lot because it says God actually does provide things for our enjoyment. It's so we don't have to give every single thing away. But uh, then he says, command them to do good. Who? Those who are rich in this present world. Well, who does that include in our culture? People who right now are at U.S. poverty level, last time I checked, are over the 90th percentile of the wealthiest people in the world. Now, I don't mean there's no poverty in America, not minimizing uh, people who live on minimum wage and all this kind of stuff and and that big challenge. Uh, But I'm simply saying that virtually anyone who can even afford to buy up, probably almost everyone listening to this podcast there might be a very few exceptions would be considered rich in this present world by biblical standards. And then it says, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. So how can you really get rich in a meaningful biblical, uh, life transforming way? Is to be rich in good deeds. And the first of those good deeds is going to be giving, uh, be in relationship to wealth, because it says, and to be generous and willing to share. And then it says, in this way, by being generous, willing to share, by doing good, by doing rich in good deeds, in this way, verse 19, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation. For the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, what I love about that verse, and, and often it's just overlooked, it's saying we can do this giving which we are to do now in this life, not 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 uh, designated simply designated in your will, so that the giving happens after you die. I'm not even sure. Counts as giving in a meaningful sense. I mean, sh- by all means, do it. I mean, in my will, I've got stuff that's being left, but it's just well stuff I wasn't hadn't yet given away. And well,
0: there's certainly no sacrifice in it.
2: But but that's it exactly. There's no sacrifice in it. So lay up treasures for yourselves, a firm foundation for the coming age. But then, so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. Well, that's so that here and now, present tense, so that right now we can take hold of the life that is truly life, not just the eternal life that awaits us, but so we can get connected with what will await us. But right here and now, true life, Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And giving is one of the primary ways we can take hold of that life. But this is so
0: countercultural. I mean, it's, it's actually so radical. And every time I read a book that you write around this topic it just blows my mind even though i've heard it a hundred times i always need the correction so what can you contrast that teaching with what the world says what are the principles out of that the biblical principles versus what does the world say about what you're supposed to do with wealth
2: well my book that says giving is the good life and i've got another one called are you living the good life well The world says the good life is not parting with your money. It's hanging on to your money. Right. Making as much money as you can. And that's not the wrong part of it. Uh, Because Alan Barnhart's making as much money as he can. He's just not keeping it. He's giving it to the things that count for eternity. And and so the, the problem is not making money. The problem is hanging on to it. And when we hang on to it, and we think that's going to bring us the good life. First of all, it doesn't. I write a uh, in a couple of my books. I told the story uh, years ago uh, on Wilson, the 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 actor who uh, who took who attempted to take his life. And they thought, oh man, this guy, he's so popular. He's this great star of motion pictures. He's got this great life, and he's surrounded by. Women and he can live anywhere he wants and do anything he wants and all of this and he wants to end his life. That's what he does. So in other words, those things don't satisfy. Uh, all the stories of the lottery winners that end up in utter m- misery. um And I talk about those in uh, my book. Generosity is the good life. It's it's like giving is the good life, but it's like okay, that's what the world thinks will bring satisfaction, but it's not. And by the way. One thing that was fascinating years ago was when Bill Gates and Warren Buffett teamed up and they did these PBS shows that had to do with their, their giving and they're being interviewed and they're together and they're talking. And I'm telling you, those two guys are they're just giddy. They're, 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 they're laughing and smiling and all of this about giddy. And, and Warren Buffett says, I wondered why I had made all those billions, and he says, I finally found out why, so I could give it away. And then Bill Gates is so happy with everything that he and his wife are doing in terms of giving. And then I say to myself, why is it that many Christians don't get this? Now, you can say, oh, well, if I had as much money as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, well, then I would give it, because who cares? They could give away 99.99% and still be extremely wealthy, but don't dismiss it because of the joy of giving. God has wired us as human beings. This isn't just something for believers. Unbelievers get great satisfaction in giving. Angelina Jolie, who's given away huge amounts of money and gone and visited very primitive and and war-torn countries, talking about This and all that I've ever done has brought me more fulfillment than anything else. Well, now let's move it over to the Christian life. And in addition to everything else, helping the poor, honoring God, we're also promised treasures in heaven. We will actually benefit from the giving that we do, as well as the people that we're giving to and God getting the glory.
0: Yeah, it's just amazing. The, The world says, stack it up. And uh, enjoy it today, and kind of the parable of the barns, right? And uh, and God's like, no, take the excess and share it, and uh, and that leads to life today. So it's not. I think some people think, well, I'm just going to have the sacrificial life, and I'll have a terrible life here, but at least it'll be better on the other side. Yeah,
2: at least it'll pay off one day, but it's certainly not going to pay off here. And you get exactly the opposite. Yeah, (laughs) you actually get the payoff in both. in both places.
1: Yeah. There's so much joy and clarity in mm-hmm. the process. Right.
0: Absolutely. Now, one thing you were telling us before we started recording is you were walking the dog this morning, listening to some, uh, Bible verses and something struck you that you wanted to share with us. So this is hot off the presses folks. So we thought we'd, uh, let you share what God is sort of, uh, putting on your mind literally today. Please, please share with us.
2: Yeah. Uh, every day when i walk my dog gracie i listen to scripture on audio and when i really get engaged with it i'll listen to it over and over again just to for it to hit home so uh gracie always wants me to get engaged in the bible so that she gets more mileage longer walk exactly Uh, because she loves her walk but here it comes, I immediately start, I didn't, I didn't remember where I left off the day before, I just pressed start, and here it was, and it was 2 Corinthians 8.1, uh, and it's the beginning of a, the two chapters in Scripture that have more to say about uh, giving than any other chapters. Uh, now, brothers, we want you to know the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Okay, well, what form is this grace going to take? Is it about their evangelism? Is it about their Bible study? Is it about their fasting and praying? Uh, What is this? What form does this grace take in their lives? Well, here it is. Out of the most severe trial, so they're undergoing trial. Whatever this grace is, it's coming to them in severe trial. They're overflowing joy. Whoa, where does that come from? They have overflowing joy in the midst of a severe trial. The most severe trial, They're overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Okay, these are all going to, the three of these things are going to add up to what follows. Severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, and here it is, welled up in rich generosity right and that's the form the grace takes generosity and that is so utterly unlikely severe trial plus uh extreme poverty and you got overflowing joy in it and you've got rich generosity those four things together how do they even coexist much less uh contribute to each other as as part of what he's talking about and he, then he just goes on to talk about their living their giving and how they begged for the privilege of giving to the saints in Jerusalem because this is what this offering was about is collecting money for people uh, in Jerusalem who are facing poverty and why would they be begging Paul and those who worked with Paul for the privilege. Well, I think what it means is they're probably being told, "Oh, we don't expect you to give to this. You're as poor as they're. They are. Maybe they're more poor than they. Are. I mean, extreme poverty. And we're talking whatever is called extreme poverty in the first century. You got to be kidding. I mean, that that is. I mean, what we say. Oh, you know, I grew up in a family who had nothing, and yet that family never went hungry, and we had no money. Well, you actually did have some money. Uh, you didn't have a lot, maybe, compared to a lot of people, but this is what's so powerful. But what hits me is this. Here's the grace of God, and it's the grace of God that's being experienced. And how does it show itself in a life? It shows itself in a life through giving. Why? Because grace itself is giving. Second uh, Corinthians 8, verse 9, it goes on from there, Uh says, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for our sakes he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And here's the thing, and I've said this before when I've spoken on this subject, and I've said it in a book or two, that God's grace is the lightning, and our giving is the thunder. Lightning comes before thunder. Grace comes before giving. God's grace is God's giving to us. For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only son. So that's the grace of God. And his giving to us, when it truly touches our hearts and transforms us, will always produce giving on our part, generous giving. So one of the things that I say to people is when I see Generous givers, I see people who are delighted, who are happy, who are fulfilled, who are joyful, and the grace of God in their lives is demonstrated in their generosity to needy people and helping those people that either are, are poor in the conventional sense or they're experiencing Bible poverty, they don't have the Word of God in their own heart language, and so let's do Bible translation work, let's support that and all of that. But the thing more than anything else is those people are responding to, you know, scripture says we love God because he first loved us. We give to God and we give to others because God first gave to us.
0: I love what you said about it being an overflow of that grace. So it's like you seek a relationship with God. He gives you that grace and out of your thankfulness, It it becomes easier, I think.
1: Does I love the thunder and I love the thunder and lightning uh, reference. We need to put that in the show notes. Repeat that again for us, Randy.
2: Yeah, uh, God's grace to us is lightning. Our giving to Him is thunder. That's all. It comes in response, right? What He and by the way, one thing I say sometimes is that if you are not giving, or if you're not finding joy in your giving, Hmm. it actually is a sign. It's kind of a warning that you are not experiencing the fullness of God's grace in your life, because when God's grace is there in these people, when they were in extreme poverty and extreme adversity, they had overflowing joy. And it produced itself, I mean, it produced this generous giving. So where there is no giving, and even where there's no cheerful giving, the grace of God is not being experienced, at least not in its fullness for sure. So, and I think what happens too, is it works the other way because we can say it's, uh, you know, well, then how can we really experience the grace of God by doing what God does by giving? Okay, so you give. Don't wait until your emotions are excited about giving to get. You can turn into somebody who loves giving, but it's usually not until you've done giving. I mean, once you've given for a while, and then you you just fall in love with it. And by the way, uh, when Jesus says store up yourselves treasures in heaven, and then he ends up uh, saying, "For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Well, uh, if if we keep our treasures ourselves. And we keep it in the things of this world and the things of this life, all the material things, just houses and lands and cars and, you know, everything else. Those, those aren't bad things, but, but they are, they do become bad uh, when they become our center of gravity. Mass, uh, things have mass, mass has gravity and gravity holds us in orbit around it. But then when we take that and we give it into God's kingdom, then what, what does he say happens? Well, your heart will follow your treasures. Where you put your treasures, your heart will go. So if somebody says, oh, you know, I'm, I, I admire these people that really care about missions and they pray a lot about missions and all, and they have a great heart for missions. I wish I had a better heart for missions. Well, you know what? The Bible tells you exactly how you can have it. Store up treasures in heaven, and I would say specifically in missions, Give to missions, and where your treasure is, there your heart will fall. Where you put your treasure, your heart is sure to fall.
1: I love it, love it. So I can I add one good. more? I love analogies, but I love your your lightning and thunder analogy. And and you guys, uh, we live in uh, an area of the country where there's a lot of thunderstorms, and you mm. can tell how close the storm is by how many seconds after the lightning strikes that you hear the thunder. So if you if the if the lightning is God's grace and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. Does that mean maybe we're further from God?
2: I don't know. Maybe I'm taking the analogy too far. No, no. I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that.
0: Well, as we wrap up here and I think, man, you've given us a lot of nuggets so you can pick from one you've already given us or come up with a new one that God might inspire at the last second. But, uh, You know, we always just, this is really a podcast from business owners to business owners. And uh, we like people to listen to this, be inspired, but then take action. And uh, it could be a very small thing or a big thing, but what is a practical tip? Somebody listening to this on the treadmill could apply tomorrow to take a step in this direction of maybe using their business as a platform for generosity.
2: I would say... Don't wait to give. Give now. Uh, Don't procrastinate giving. uh, Don't procrastinate obedience in any area of your life. If you feel God's prompting to give, don't sit around and wait to give. Because what will happen sometimes is that leading of the Holy Spirit, that prompting of the Lord for you to give, will, will pass if you don't act on it. So act on it now, because I uh, I've known a lot of people who've told me, uh, you know, uh, hey, I've got this build business and I'm going to build it. And one of my goals is to give up, give away 50 percent of everything we take in and maybe someday it'll be 90 percent. And uh, they know R.G. Letourneau and they know Stanley Tam and they know the stories of business people who have given huge amounts of money but then when i ask okay so how much are you giving now and then it's like well you know what we need to hold on to the money now to build the capital uh, with our and invest in our company and do all this and then i said well what makes you think if you're not a generous giver now that one day your dream of becoming a generous giver will be fulfilled uh it, it, you know don't expect that to happen because your treasure, the the Jesus said, your heart is where your treasure is now. He never said your heart is where you want your treasure to someday be. Your He never said your heart is where your treasure will be put five or 10 or 20 or 40 years from now. Um, no, it's now. So invest it now, give generously now, and even if that means you can't, build the business in exactly the ways that you were thinking Err on the side of giving because you're not erring at all.
0: Wow. I mean, I'm thinking, uh, I'm also just thinking Malachi three ten. right? Test me in this. I think uh, it's one of the few places God says to do that. So let's take them up on the offer. See what happens. Even if you don't believe, uh, if you don't believe Randy, try it out, see what happens. So Randy, this has been amazing. Uh, thank thank you. you so much uh, for joining Great us. Great to be with you guys. Uh, Jeff, thank you also. And uh, thank you to all our listeners for joining us on this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. Please share it with your friends, colleagues, and family. And uh, you know, share your ratings and reviews. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.